everyone. Welcome back to the Impact Show 2.0. I'm your host, Matt Diner, and this is a show for sport coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, and fitness entrepreneurs who want to increase the impact they have on those around them. In today's episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Rebecca Tridipo. If you are unfamiliar with her, I actually have the privilege of serving alongside of her um, within the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Her and I both serve within the Mid-Atlantic region, but don't get to connect that often just because of the areas in which we serve. But she is the women's athletic chaplain at Liberty University. She's an author, a motivational speaker. She's coached at several different levels in multiple sports, an ultra marathon runner. And I just love her passion for not only seeing people grow in their faith, but she really has a heart to see sports played out the way they were meant to be. And so we're going to dive a little bit into um, just the role of joy and play in sports. But then we also talk a little bit just about this concept of youth sports and burnout um, and how we can reverse that trend. Um, And then she also talks a little bit about her journey as a writer. So for anyone listening that uh, aspires to publish a book or an article or or start getting into some kind of content creation. She just talks a little bit about her story. So I think you'll learn a lot from it. Stay tuned. After the interview, I'm going to talk through some practical strategies based on some of the information that Rebecca shares and also just give you some insight into some resources that you have at your disposal, whether they be uh, some videos and books and other things. She mentions a few of them, but I want to make sure I'm pointing you in the right direction because I know how critical it is um, that if we really start to take strategies to implement joy and play into sports, it's going to change the culture. Uh, You're going to notice the athletes are enjoying sports longer. You're going to get more out of them as far as effort and attitude. Um, So it's a a topic that I'm passionate about as well. But I want to make sure that after the interview with Rebecca, that I just go through a couple Uh, just main points, but also point you in the right direction. So if you want to research more on your own or start to come up with strategies that you can implement as a coach or strength coach, that I point you in the right direction. So definitely stay tuned. But here is my interview with Rebecca Tridipo. Rebecca, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for being on the show with me today. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that our conversation is going to be great. I've been looking forward to it uh, since we had a chance to talk offline a little bit. um, Just about some of these concepts of bringing joy and play into sports and how to get the most out of of athletes just by bringing those elements back into the game. But um, while I have you for this conversation, I want to dive in. to a few topics, but I want to start a little bit more general um, since we're going to be talking a little bit about your new book. But before okay. we even get to that specific book, how has that journey been for you of becoming an author? Because I know you're an ultra marathon runner and, and you've done blogs and motivational speaking and all those things. Uh, but can you tell me about your journey into writing and, and how that came about for you? Well, it wasn't highly intentional. It sort of just happened. Um, I think my writing goes back to at least formal writing, maybe 97, something like that. Um, A good friend of mine had set a record on the Appalachian Trail and then had the third fastest time to run from L.A. to New York. 
And so I decided it would be cool to write about those two adventures. So the first book was called Quest for Adventure. And um, that, I mean, back that long ago, the process was really quite different because you didn't have self-publishing. You didn't, you weren't able to just upload files to Amazon and have a book pop out. So that was, that was a fairly, um, rough introduction into the world of publishing but then each one each one has a different story um i had written one about a run through the jungle and that was truly self-published through a company that helped with the actual layout and the pictures and all that kind of stuff then i there was another one that i approached a company with a book proposal and they took it on and that was sort of a hybrid deal then i went to a writers conference for the next one did um a book proposal there too got a contract so that was more traditional publishing and then um this last one i actually approached approached three dimensional institute and um they liked the idea and we struck up a deal. So it's really different. Yeah. Now, like as it. opposed to the past. Yeah. Now you talk about, you know, having these great stories to tell, had you already been writing before you published some of these works? Had you always been a, a writer or, or was this something that came about just because of some of the experiences? Or well, I think I enjoyed writing, but Again, think pre-blog days, pre-internet days. <laughs> um, there just wasn't as much opportunity to easily get your work out there. Um, so while I enjoyed it, I did not write a lot. But then with that first book, it sort of opened up some opportunities. I enjoyed it. Um, my early work, I almost apologized because... I think I'm a much better writer now than I was then. So it's almost embarrassing to go back and read some of my first stuff, but that's just the way it is. It's a learning process. We're, we're always learning and, and growing and improving. So yes, sir. it's good to see that every, every work is better than the last and that's how it should be. Well, um, I hope so at least. And, and when you, when you look at a lot of what, whether they be, fitness entrepreneurs or strength conditioning coaches that, that are listening to this show that may have content that, that they feel is valuable, uh, but maybe haven't taken that step into getting something published or whether it be a book, article, however that looks. Um, is, is there any, I guess, piece of advice or piece of wisdom that, that you could share for someone that just hasn't pulled the trigger on getting started yet, but wants to know, you know, what, what that first step is for them. Yeah. Um, for sure. I would say try to find an audience through maybe a blog to start assembling some of the work into, in smaller bits and portions. You know, a lot of people will say, Oh, I want to write a book. And really anyone can publish a book nowadays for almost no cost. Um, the reality of it is to find someone's book amongst the billions of books that are out there 
I think I saw somewhere that the average sale of a book nowadays is less than 50 copies. <laughs> so you're certainly not going to get rich fast by writing books. But I think the thing that was most valuable to me is I went to a writer's conference and I was sitting around tables with um, acquisition editors and I was listening to people who had been successful in the business and you just learn so much and you learn something about the process. You learn how, you know, what does a book proposal look like? How do I write one? Um, you'd learn how to write a query letter and all these things that are so important if you're going to publish in some other way than strictly self-publishing. So yeah, blogs, see if there's an audience, test it out and then get to some writers conferences. Awesome. Great insight. And so it kind of moves me to your current book, the, the newest release creative coaching across three dimensions. So you'd mentioned that you approached the 3D Institute about this idea. So tell me what was the need for this book that, that you were compelled to, to bring this idea to them? What brought that about and what made you really want to bring this, bring this book to market? Well, I think there's a, a couple of, things that that go into this answer number one is the way that I coached um, I think I was a fairly creative coach and I saw the way the kids responded and when I say I'm coaching uh, the coaching that I'm referring to was coaching cross-country and distance for indoor and outdoor track so um, we just I just felt like we had to do something other than just every day tell the kids what they were going to run and watch them go away and then watch them come back. So I got very involved. I never asked them to do a workout that I wouldn't do. Um, and we made it fun. We worked really hard, but we also um, tried never to forget the joy of movement. So I would create like every Friday because most of our meets were on Saturdays. Friday was a, le a lesser intense practice, I guess. So we just called it fun Fridays. And so I would do all kinds of games and activities that all had value in the first event dimension. Like it, it might've been for speed and agility or strength or something like that. Um, but it was also fun. And the kids just lived for those kind of days. And even some of our really hard workouts, if you could disguise it, like uh, it would be like hiding zucchini in a chocolate cake. They worked really hard, but it had the essence of a game or a competition. Even think back to grammar school when you would do relay races and people get all, you know, if you can do your workouts and not all of them, you have, I think you have to be pretty strategic how often you introduce these things, but I just found that the kids really responded well. And so when I became familiar with 3d coaching, I'm thinking, man, some of the activities that they talk about and some of the strategies 
particularly for second and third dimensions, I felt like I was already practicing. So then I started writing them down, starting, started to test a lot of them, you know, with various groups that I worked with. And then I'm going, hmm. So I had a little discussion with Wes Simmons one day and um, I said, would you be interested in something like that? He goes, yep. So that's really started the conversation. And uh, I'm just very pleased to be able to partner with 3D because we we have the same purpose and the same goal. Yeah. And I think that's where, what, what I've enjoyed about the book has been 3D coaching. When you look at it, it makes sense. And it's, it's looking at it in, in a different way, being transformational versus transactional. And it makes so much sense. But I think oftentimes it's, it's easy to, whether it's a workshop or looking at content um, to say, hey, yeah, this is great stuff. But then you don't know how to take the first step to implementing right. uh, strategies as a coach. And I think being able to be intentional and have a strategy <clears throat> is so important. And how you lay out the book, there's really, it, it goes through not only what equipment you need, what's the game or activity or or you know, relay, whatever that may be, it goes through that. Um, and then it also mentions what are ways to tie that in to yeah, those exactly. three dimensions. Um, because I think that's where you need to know, am I working on that, that just the first dimension or how can I tie in a second, second dimension, um, you know, element to it, but knowing what that is to make sure am, am I covering some of the different elements that are needed to success. Um, so really, really great job. And I love that you made it practical. Um, have you been, um, hearing from people that, um, have started to implement some of the strategies or what are some ways that you've seen the book being used commonly? Well, I'm getting asked to do a lot more because I think people can see the possibilities and the doors of that this kind of approach, intentional approach can open up. And I mean, even just the coaches that I work with here at Liberty, we have a women's coaches huddle and, and we'll talk about some of these creative ways that we can interact with our athletes. And it's really fun to hear their stories of, Hey, I tried this and I couldn't believe how fast the girls were swimming, even though we were playing a game, you know? And so for them to come, come back and talk about their own experiences and their willingness to try a different approach, um, I think speaks not, not to my wisdom, but it's just, it's just in a way common sense that I think sometimes we concentrate so hard on producing skills and results. Um, you know, we look way down the, the line in terms of we have to score so many points or we have to win so many games that we lose sight of what we're doing in between time. So I think it is, I'm encouraged by the number of people who don't see it as just pie in the sky fluff, uh -huh. um, but something that they could actually use and um, I guess 
the other thing that I see being helpful is that the in the uh, the first uh, not the first chapter but toward the beginning of the book I talk about some tools that you can use to actually even assess where your team is I think sometimes we don't have a really good handle on what our kids are thinking because if we don't know what they're thinking if we don't know what their attitudes are then it's really difficult to formulate a plan to bring out the best in them in all three dimensions. So I think those team tools can be um, very helpful mm-hmm. to figure out your starting point and then create a plan. Well, and you mentioned that I think it's so important to have a strategy behind it because because when you look at bringing joy and playing this into sports, uh, it, it becomes well, well, how much? How do I how do I still have them compete and and teach them hard work and all these things? Um, but you just mentioned it, self assessment as a team or as a coach to say where are we at? What are we lacking? Um, with anything, you need, you need to know where you are so you know where to improve. Um, so how has that process worked for you? Um, and what kinds of things have you done to help teams assess where they're at just to get that firm starting point so they can build a strategy off of it? Sure. I'll give you two examples. The first one is something that, um, you know, the first time you try it, you go, hmm, I wonder if this is going to work. But it seems to work. I do something called an index card survey. and so. Um, and it's, it's nothing really special. I sort of just made it up, but it seems to be very effective. You hand out cards to all the, to all the athletes, you know, have them spread out a little bit. And then you tell them that they have to be brutally honest. You have to assure them that their responses are completely anonymous, which, which means that a coach probably could not administer this himself or herself um, because when I do it I tell I tell the athletes I said look whatever you write down your coaches will never ever see these actual cards but what I will do is I will compile all the results and then coaches and athletes alike will see the results but I said they will never see the cards so they can't analyze your handwriting you don't have to worry about that And so there's normally uh, three parts to this little survey. I'll come up with um, maybe two or three questions, or it's actually fill in the blank, but they can only use a one-word answer. So, for example, um, what is one word to describe your view of the upcoming season? For example, if you do it at the beginning mm-hmm. and they can only write one more down. And so I'll, I'll come up with a couple of things. Sometimes I'll talk with the coach ahead of time, or if I have a sense of where, you know, what suspicions you have that you have of how your kids are thinking. But anyway, so then there's the next session section that I'll have them rank from one to 10, like one being pitiful, 10 being phenomenal and i'll say um if you can evaluate your uh, let's say your preparation 
for this season physically on a one to 10, where would you put yourself? Or, and you can come up with all kinds of things. You could ask individual questions. You can say, how do you perceive the uh, preparedness of the team as a whole? And a lot of times there's a difference between you see yourself much in a much more positive light than you see everybody else, which sometimes that's interesting. So I might have three or four of those. And then on occasion, I'll ask one thing like, what is your biggest fear or concern? Or where's the, the biggest chance for improvement? Something like that where they can use a couple words. And then I'll take the cards, I'll collect them all, and I'll just flip through them in order. So whatever the answers were, I'll just read off read off the words that they were given. Or I'll read off the numbers that people gave. And I cannot think of a single instance where I've done this with a team where there haven't been huge eye-popping surprises in the way that at least some of the people were thinking and the coaches just like fall on the ground and they they can't believe what was uncovered but then you know i'll go ahead and analyze that data give it back to them in a chart form you know how many of the responses were positive how many were negative how many, you know there's a number of different ways that you can can analyze the data but that has really, really proven very effective, I think, in figuring out what the team is thinking. And it gives you some kind of place to start. Um, one of the other tools that I'll use is I get the, the coaches and the, the all together on one team and the athletes on another team, and I give them a blank piece of paper and I'll tell them to draw a line down the middle and put ideal coach at the top of one column and ideal athlete at the top of the other column. So both groups, both the coaches and the athletes, write down, they sort of brainstorm and write down, okay, what are the characteristics of an ideal athlete or an ideal coach? And then after a certain period of time, you have someone from each side read off the answers and then circle anything that is common to both groups. So for example, um, if both groups think that an ideal, ideal athlete should be, uh, what, what's a characteristic, should be dedicated, mm -hmm. all right? Then we circle that and that's a point of agreement. So, you know, a lot of times coaches will just arbitrarily and I'm sure for good reason, but they might come up with team rules or team expectations or something like that. But when you do this little exercise, you can see that, okay, the athletes think that we as an athlete should exhibit these ideal characteristics. We also think that the coaches should. And when there's agreement between what an ideal coach and an ideal athlete, then you can have some accountability because it's no longer you know, a kid can't say to a coach, well, you don't, you don't understand or, you know, I don't have to comply like that. And you say, no, look, we, we all agreed 
that this is something that we should try to be like. This is an ideal athlete. This is a characteristics. So you're not really um, complying with this. So what are we going to do? How can we improve the situation? So I found that that can be pretty eye-opening because the athletes also see what the coaches are looking for and vice versa. And I've seen coaching behavior change because of what their athletes have said they desire in an ideal coach. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I've, I've used the ideal coach, ideal athlete exercise in, in a camp, a team camp setting before, and, and I've seen how eye-opening it can be for both coaches and athletes. So it's a, it's a yeah. great, uh, great idea to implement. Now, both of those ideas, I know you kind of mentioned, typically it's a beginning of the season exercise. Um, have you seen that, or, or maybe however you'd recommend do you see a lot of teams that revisit that during the year or have you seen uh, any stories of success where it's not just say, Hey, we're, we're assessing at the beginning of the season and we'll deal with it again, the beginning of next year. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, with, with some of the teams I work with, we'll do it halfway through the season. And if, if we still have the same struggles, the same um, fear and trepidation or, I don't know what the other word is, but we can sort of track, you know, have we made progress or have we not? And if not, then why not? And we can, we can look at it then and make adjustments. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, and I've actually done it at the end of the season too. You know, were, were we able to make some progress from beginning to end? Sometimes the answer is yes. (laughs) Sometimes it's uh, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. I love that being able to start from, from that common ground. And then, uh, like you said, hope, hopefully progress is made towards yeah. what's found in that assessment. And so as we look to get into this, this topic of, uh, bringing joy and play back into sports, which I think is so important. Um, my last couple episodes of the show and interviews, I've, I've kind of gotten into some topics on long-term athlete development and we start looking at um, what phases athletes go through as they, as they grow older. And one of the things I've noticed through reading a lot of articles and studies about this whole concept of long-term athlete development is that it starts with play. It starts with basic movements and just learning that and enjoying it. Um, but then quickly moves to uh, more and more structure to the point where, at least in some articles and views, it's just kind of forgot about it. And that, that just starts them, but then they need to get into training. Why is it so important to keep play and joy prominent um, as, as coaches and athletes uh, as you look to you know, develop not only a competitive atmosphere with the kids, but making sure that we're not seeing kids quit sports or, or develop burnout? Well, and you just mentioned the the downside is that when we're when we concentrate so much on skills and skill development and playing games and competing so early, you have a humongous percentage of kids that will quit by the time they're twelve or thirteen because they're they're tired of it. But if we can 
you know, and I don't think we're probably ever going to change it. I know my husband and I and our kids are 28 and 32. So this was a long time ago, but we made a decision that we didn't want them in organized sport until they were about fourth grade. And then they would do like a one day a week thing at the Y, you know, on a soccer team or whatever. And I think if you would go back and look at the, look at the research, if you have a kid starting at four years old and a kid starting at eight or nine years old, that eight or nine might be starting from zero, but because they are just physically more mature, mentally more mature, uh, very, very quickly, they close the gap on the kid who started at four. So now you have a kid who starts at four, plays till eight and says, forget it. I'm tired of it. I don't want the pressure of it. Um, they're done. But you, if you have someone starting to be introduced to sport later, then their longevity is also going to extend out on the other side. Um, and I think we have to, I think coaches have to take some of the blame. Parents have to take a lot of the blame because it becomes, um, for a lot of parents, you live vicariously through your kids. You were never a successful athlete. So my kid's going to be the best soccer player. My kid's going to be the best basketball player. They're going to be the fastest swimmer, you know, over my dead body. Uh, and we put tremendous pressure on our kids. So it's, it's no wonder that they're all quitting and that they lose that pure joy of, of movement. Um, you know, I, I would always tell my, tell the girls, not so much the guys, cause not long of them, not many had long flowing ponytails, but you know, when you're running, just take a nanosecond to enjoy your ponytail flapping in the breeze, you know, or, or running down the court and making this awesome series of passes. And you're just so fluid in the movement. You've, you can't forget because that's all, that's all part of play, you know, it's just this wonderful joy. Um, there's a local college coach. He's a D3 coach. He's won the national championship, uh, for soccer and he's often said that when he recruits a kid he doesn't want someone who's only played one sport he's looking for a multi-sport girl because number one they're not going to be burnt out um their their injuries are going to be far far less particularly overuse injuries and he said he wants a kid who spent their childhood jumping out of trees um he wants a kid who can catch a ball. And these are soccer players, but he wants a kid who's played softball because he knows that they have good spatial recognition of where a ball is in relationship to them. He wants a kid who can jump out of a tree because they have great kinesthetic sense. He wants a kid who knows how to fall down and roll down a hill. These are all elements of play that are so important. Um, to be able to take in and develop when a kid's old enough into a well-rounded athlete. Yeah. That's, I think there's a lot to be said there with, you know, when you're talking about college coaches recognizing the need for athletes to be well-rounded and have played multiple sports yeah. and, 
Um, because I think you mentioned earlier, it, it's some coaches haven't found that concept yet and they're trying to specialize too early, but a lot of parents. And, you know, I mentioned uh, in, in my last episode talking to Jim Kilbasa, we, we talked a little bit about a strength coach's role in that of what do you do when a, when a parent comes to you and says, well, I need my son or daughter here in six months. And that's the only focus. Um, and yet the, the science speaks to the need for um, the need to use different muscle groups and, and get away from sports specialization. Um, it also speaks to, like you've mentioned, uh, joy enhancing their ability to compete and stay engaged and involved. Um, so I think it's, it's tough sometimes to educate that, but the more that stories like this or hearing from coaches, parents aren't really going to change until they, they hear from coaches that they're looking for something different because I think for the last, you know, however many years there's been this shift of, well, they need to be playing basketball only or soccer or lacrosse, whatever that is. Um, So have you noticed that more even across at Liberty where you're at um, are more and more coaches starting to verbalize that to parents, just like that soccer coach you mentioned, or is there still a little bit of ways to go with that? Well, Yes and no. Um, I think most are going to be really interested in kids who have played their one sport for a long, long time. Although in talking to some, they do understand that burnout and attitude can definitely be a problem because, you know, if they started super young in a particular sport, that's the only thing they played by the time they get to college they're already what 10 years into it maybe more um some of them probably 12 or 14 years and so then it almost gets a little risky because again the data sort of proves it out that your injury rate because of overuse injuries is going to be much higher so you may not even have that kid so what if they were great when they were 15 or 16 if they get to college and they either hate it so that they don't function well or they get hurt then there's no sense in recruiting this same coach that I was talking to um, and maybe I'll hook you up up with this guy because I think he would be a fascinating conversation his name's Todd Olson um, But his PhD is in epidemiology, so he's a really smart guy. (laughs) But he just, he says that he understands that because of the way college coaches recruit, that parents can really feel like their kids should only be a single sport. But he really believes that the soonest anyone should specialize is probably... 15, 16 years old, so ninth or 10th grade, if, if and only if you really, really want to go to the next level and play in college. Um, and I think, I think the saddest thing is the very few numbers of college athletes that are actually have been multi-sport athletes. I think that's a, a great disservice. Yeah. And maybe I'm just old because I was a multi-sport 
athlete in high school and in college, and then even after college. And I just think it, it made me a much more rounded person and a more rounded, you know, competitor. Yeah. And because more and more uh, kids are being pushed into sports specialization earlier, just because of, again, whether it's misinformation or, or being pushed by organizations into that feeling that need to go there. Um, it's even more important that if they are going to be playing a sport more often or not playing as many sports, how does that coach focus on process over performance? And also how do they implement those strategies for joy and play to make sure that burnout doesn't happen? And so when I look at that, uh, when you see at the youth or the high school level, I think as a, if you're a, a parent talking to uh, some of these coaches, I, I think there's a lot of coaches that would say, you know, that we, we focus on developing the athlete. We focus on character development, having strategies that they enjoy and, and process, but it do- doesn't translate into what you see. If you were to watch a practice, how do you, how do you see or, or notice a difference if someone's actually practicing what they're preaching in terms of uh, implementing some of these strategies? What are some things that you notice of programs that really take it from theory to putting it into a strategy? Are, are there certain things that you've seen or that, that you kind of look for? Well, number one, you look, you look at what the athletes are thinking and saying and doing. So for example, like on a college level, if an athlete wants to invite a coach to their wedding, that coach has probably been fairly impactful. Not to teach a skill to make them a better tennis player or whatever, but they've actually had relationship. Um, If if an athlete could never think about uh, wanting to go to talk to a coach about an issue or a problem or get their perspective or opinion on something, my guess is that's an indication that that coach has not really been very transformational, but just transactional. So I think if you look at the status of the relationship, that's pretty telling whether a coach is transactional or transformational. Yeah. That's great. And I think we've talked a lot about relationships on this show um, and how important those are. And that's been a common thread is that if you don't build relationships, you don't have that kind of impact. And everybody gets into coaching because they, they want to have an impact on the lives of, the, of those that they coach and lead. Um, so I think that just speaks even more to it. And um, I'm excited to put some of these resources from whether it be your book and even some other uh, just great resources out there for some of the people listening on how do you develop strategies and what are some of the you know the games and activities that you can implement uh, because of you, you as you said throughout this interview uh, by implementing strategies to to bring joy and play into sports you're going to see all those first dimensional things improve whether it's speed and agility oh absolutely improving their aerobic threshold and some of those things, but having it uh, put into a strategy that you're intentional about implementing those things in a different way than maybe just running straight conditioning, you're going to get more out of them, but you also build that relationship because they, they enjoy being there. They know that you care. um, And it also develops a bond within the team. So um, I'm going to, before I, 
run out of time with you. I want to ask you just, just one more thing to kind of get practical, um, just to get your thoughts on, we talk about this whole uh, issue with where sports are going and that you're not seeing as many multi-sport athletes and some of those things. Um, and, and this concept of, of burnout at a much younger age, I know that there's issues with not only the sports organizations themselves, but with parents and with coaches. So it can, it can be attacked from a lot of different angles, but what is one thing or one step that our sports culture can take to help reverse that trend of burnout at a younger age? If there was one practical step or maybe one first step that you feel would move the needle quite a bit, is there something that jumps out to you? Um, I think, well, if we're talking younger people like kids, I think parents have to be brave enough to buck the system because the system right now says that a four or five years old has to, has to have ballet one night and they have to play softball and then they have to do this and then they have to do that. We've over-programmed our kids so much because we bought into it that we're denying them. We're going to hurt them if we, we don't give them all these experiences and opportunities. So it takes a really brave parent to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to say, okay, let's go outside and, play in the woods let's go invent a game let's throw them a ball um let's have all the neighborhood kids come over to our yard and we're going to play a game you know and it, it may not be a scripted game but i think there's just so much societal pressure that that's the way it has to be there's so much societal pressure that if you're going to play volleyball in high school you have to start when you're in fifth grade mm-hmm. I would propose that, you know, by the time you're in eighth or ninth grade and you're introduced maybe to volleyball, the really good athlete will adapt quite nicely if they're really have that, those kind of talents, their skill level will come up to what maybe their teammates who started at four within a very short period of time, their skill will come up to that. Um, so I think, I think it just takes some, some guts Mm -hmm. to buck the system. Um, I, I don't want to be discouraging. (laughs) I think on a global system, I think that would be really hard to get away from the pressure for highly organized sport. But I think that's, that's what it's going to take. And I think along with that, you mentioned bravery of parents. I think you talk about coaches and strength professionals at the younger age. If if parents are sending them to you to, um, you know, have those performance results right away and those things, it takes some bravery to say, well, hey, we're going to focus on developing them as an athlete and teach them skills and maybe train them in a way that exposes them to different movements, um, not just the sport that you're bringing them in for. Exactly. Um, educating parents on that, which I think takes some bravery <laughs> from that side as well. But being able to step up and say, yeah, I, I know we're here to serve your needs as a, as a parent. If you, they sign up for a program or they bring them to a team, uh, but really letting them know what the plan is. So when you talk about strategy, some of it's just having that outline to say, well, here's why we're doing it. <laughs> here's the reason. Mm-hmm. Why it. 
Mm-hmm. And here's the results you're going to see from it. Because I think when you lay it out that way, by saying, hey, they're still going to improve in all these areas, it makes it much easier for the parent to to buy in in case that they aren't educated well and they aren't brave enough. They're just in, in the system. So, um, no, I think that's great insight. And I think, um, yeah, we've got our work cut out for us. But I, I love the fact that you are start, starting to help put some practical ways for, for coaches and, um, you know, whether they be – it could also be parents using some of these games or it could be camp directors or those kind of things and saying, Hey, how can we do things a little bit differently with more intentionality towards developing them as an athlete, focusing on this process. So just want to say thanks again for the, uh, all the, the insight that you have. I'm going to make sure people are able to find you online, find the book, um, because I think it's very practical and not pie in the sky, like you mentioned. Um, are there any other resources as you've kind of, you know, gone into this, this realm of, of play in sports and bringing in joy and those kind of things? Are there a couple, whether it be websites, blogs, books that, that you want to point people to as well? And, and I'll make sure I put links in the show notes, but are there any key pieces of, of uh, information or resources that you want to highlight as well that coaches can use? Sure. Um, a couple things that I love that really focus on, process. Um, Brett Ledbetter has written a book, What Drives Winning, with a subtitle of Building Character Gets Results, and here's how. Um, Extraordinary Influence, Tim Irwin. It's not specifically about sport, but so many of the principles um, that are relevant to sport and leadership are in there. Inside Out Coaching, Joe, Ehrman, that's a tremendous book that I think has a lot of those same principles. Um, yeah, there's there's so many. Um, Chopwood, Carry Water. Yes. Is, is wonderful. I mean, it's an allegory. It reads very quickly. But the the biggest takeaway there is be ridiculously faithful. And that's that's sort of my catchphrase now. <laughs> Because if we can teach our kids, if we ourselves can understand that we've got to embrace the process, we have to be ridiculously faithful in everything we do, whether whether it's in our faith walk, whether it's in our sporting life, whether it's in our academics, whether it's in our lifetime learning. If we are ridiculously faithful, our mindset will be where it needs to be and we'll make progress and achieve great things. So. Um, yeah, those are a couple wonderful books, I think. Awesome. Well, you've, get, you've given a ton of, of, of great uh, insights, but also just practical steps. So, Rebecca, just thanks so much for your time. I, I appreciate all, all the insights that you've given, um, and I'll make sure people know how to connect with you. Um, but just thanks for your time today, and thanks for being on the show with me. Terrific. Thanks, Matt. Hey everybody, welcome back. Hopefully you enjoyed my interview with Rebecca Tridipo. I highly recommend that you check out her book, Creative Coaching Across Three Dimensions. She dives into 57 different games, activities, competitions 
that you have in your toolbox at your disposal to be able to use during practice or training sessions. As she mentioned, first you need to assess where you're at and where you can improve, but then you need a strategy. How do we implement joy and play into sports? And I think the first thing we think of a lot of times when we hear that about joy and play is that sports is about competition. Sports is there to challenge us. And it's hard. It's not always easy and fun. And that is true. But what I'm talking about is having a strategy to make sure that you are getting the best out of your players. When we talk about how emotions drive performance, joy is always more sustainable. All right, You can use fear or anger, and it may have short-term success, but long-term sustainable effort and attitude always comes from a place of joy. So if we can do that, help them have fun, build team camaraderie, while still improving their speed, endurance, agility, power, all those things that we want to see improve, but doing it in a way where we can also learn how our players work together, how they handle situations that maybe aren't defined by running to a certain line or a certain spot, but now you have an open construct of play where they've got to think a little bit on their feet, that has more benefits than just the physical part, which is still going to be there. So you're not losing anything, but you actually have an opportunity to gain a lot more by implementing those strategies. But it doesn't happen on accident. You have to be intentional about it. So that's my challenge to you is have a strategy to implement play, find joy in sports, and you're going to see that your players, one, come ready to work and get after it. They grow grow closer as a team, and we develop some of those offer off the field or off the court intangibles that we want to build. Um, But you're going to notice that you see improved performance from it as well. So that's one challenge for you. Uh, I think for a lot of the strength coaches that maybe work in the private sector that are listening to this podcast, implementing some of these games and activities is also a great opportunity for you. uh, How you get one, kids are going to want to come back to training sessions. They're having fun. They're enjoying themselves. But two, you then have the opportunity to show them how this game or activity or competition is helping them improve performance. You have a chance to show that to the parent that's asking, hey, why are they playing this game? What is this benefiting? Um, And and being able to break that down allows you to really get into conversations and show your knowledge, but also realize that it doesn't have to be just drudgery. These kids can enjoy themselves playing sport, and they're actually going to reap the benefits from it as well. Another challenge for a lot of my strength coaches listening, uh, people that work with teams in a speed and conditioning setting, maybe over the summer you're working with sports teams, by helping them implement these strategies, by showing them games and uh, just opportunities to, to implement play into a session, I would love to see that coaches start to want to steal those drills. And I think too often we try to keep it to ourselves and say, well, if, if it's a drill that they can do, then they're not going to have use for me. I think the opposite. If you're able to help them implement these strategies, they now come to you as a resource because you're showing them how they can get the best out of their team, but you're also helping them understand what are some character lessons I can implement from this. Also, what are some areas that I'm improving? We don't have to do the same thing every time. I can mix things up 
create a strategy where I'm still actually developing some different elements of athleticism that otherwise I couldn't in just a set drill. I may be using less equipment, giving more freedom to evaluate and assess some of my talent and leadership skills. Um, and there's just so many more benefits. So I would say look for opportunities to be a resource by teaching some coaches out there some of these strategies and helping them along the way, especially if you're coming alongside of them as a strength coach. This allows you to deepen that bond with a coach um, that you can you can help along this journey. So that's one of my challenges. Another thing I wanted to make sure I brought up was the fact that Rebecca talked about just how we can change the culture in sports and involve brave parents. But I think before the parents can be brave, I think there needs to be bravery from coaches and strength coaches in educating, right? Educating our parents. How are we getting these articles out from college coaches or showing the science about not specializing in sport, but being able to just have open play and less structured games and competitions how does that develop them more what are some of the benefits they're going to see down the road not only injury prevention but improved performance so how we do as an industry in getting the word out and sharing those articles in lifting up authors or podcasters or bloggers that are sharing this i think is an important part of it because parents can't step up and be brave until they know the right information and we know they're going to see the results. So all we need to happen is, is really getting that buy-in from a few parents. And then once they start to see results, I think that you see just that word of mouth um, starting to happen where it's, it's a lot easier sell when there's success stories from it. Um, so, again, I love the fact that she talked about the bravery of parents. But I think there's even some practical steps for us in the industry of strength and conditioning uh, to truly have an impact how are we doing a better job of educating parents and coaches um, so that they are set up for success? And as you look to implement strategies for this, uh, I'm going to be including a ton of links in the show notes. First, you're going to hear about how you can get in touch with Rebecca through her blog, through her Amazon page that shows different um, books and um, resources that she's written, but also a link to the new book that I mentioned, The Creative Coaching Across Three Dimensions. So you're going to have an opportunity to check that out. She also mentioned a few books and resources to check out. I will have links to those as well. Plus, there are a few articles I'm going to post that have to do with this concept of uh, youth sports burnout and bringing play into sports. I hope that you will continue to dive deep and research and read more about this and listen to more about this topic because it really does uh, affect where the culture of sports is going. And I, I want us to be on the forefront of, of changing that culture for the better. So please take a look. If you are doing something creative, implementing some of these strategies, or you know coaches that are, I would love to hear from you. Uh, because I think it's important that we celebrate what's going well and also learn from each other. So I will have my email address in the show notes as well. Feel free to shoot me an email and just let me know some things that, that you feel are going on or need to be talked about, and I'd love to, to cover those topics. So thanks again for listening. Uh, I hope that the Impact Show is helping you become a better coach, have more impact, build relationships with those that, that you're called to lead, 
And I look forward to my next episode with you guys in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.